Every year, well, for the most part, FPAN Central has participated in an event down at the Silver River State Park in Ocala, Marion County, um, at the Environmental Center down there, the Silver River Nappin. To quote their website, the Silver River Nappin is and prehistoric arts festival is the largest event of its kind in the southeast. It takes place on the third weekend of each February. Anyway, it's a great time. I always enjoy participating. It's usually chilly out. I get to talk with folks. It's a, it's a good time. You get to see Marion County's finest <laughs> um, and uh, all over North Central Florida's finest folks come on out and talk about things that, you know, we all have in common. And that's this, this love of the past. Several years ago, I had the rare opportunity to actually get away from my table and walk around the festival. And I, I made my way over to the section where they have different artisans working on what they call the prehistoric arts, like flint napping, fire making, pottery shaping, and such. That is where I first met Pedro Zapata. Pedro is a contemporary artist who also focuses on traditional seminal arts, wood carving, basket making. He is an excellent craftsman and artist. It's interesting that there's this constant squabble between what is craft and what is art. And I think we touched on this in previous episodes and we'll probably touch on it again. It's it's a squabble I'm very aware of being that I make pottery, contemporary functional pottery, and I consider myself a craftsperson, not a clay artist. Well, I guess it depends on who is asking, really. And that's what they call code switching. And it's real, folks. And I do it every day, sometimes subconsciously. Anyway, Pedro is a member of the Independent Seminole Tribe of Florida. There is a distinction between the Independent Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Seminole Tribe of Florida, and I'll let Pedro discuss that later. He is also a traditional Seminole canoe carver. It went like this, our first meeting. I introduced myself to him, Nigel Rudolph, with F-Pan, yada, yada, yada. And no kidding, he looks me dead in the eye and to some effect says, oh yeah, You're the guy who keeps telling everyone we only burn out our canoes. (laughs) I was like, um, uh, uh, didn't that happen though? And he was making a joke, but at the same time he wasn't. Though this certainly wasn't the first time it crossed my mind that perhaps the indigenous people of Florida, the ones that are very much still alive and in the present, might have a different take on so many of these ideas Florida archaeologists have put forward for decades. Now, certainly, Pedro's ancestors prior to European contact and the introduction of metal tools did utilize fire to help hollow out pine and cypress logs to make into watercraft. That was a thing that happened. But then they acquired metal tools and they adapted quite well to those. Anyway, Pedro and I have kept in touch. Um, I have made it a point to come and say howdy at every subsequent nap-in event. And I recently had the pleasure of talking to him more about his life and his art education, his passion for traditional seminal craft work, and of course, canoes. He is amazingly kind and generous person, overflowing with knowledge and history about his people. I have to say, for me, it wasn't the easiest conversation to have, actually, as someone whose human brain has been thoroughly scrambled, ingrained in the language and philosophy of contemporary Florida archaeology, this was literally my first opportunity to have a conversation with an indigenous person regarding their thoughts on the subject of not only canoes, but archaeology and public understanding of Native Americans today. 
Even those of us who try so hard to not allow those deeply rooted academic biases, the American misunderstandings, the colonizer's ego to spill out of our lips, it does. And like sludge, it coats conversations. But I'm learning and I'm evolving and it is my sincerest goal to help change this. Well, vulgar way of viewing the history of the state and this country. Act local, think global, change what you can. Here we are again after a long delay, folks. Back at it with a new episode of the Materialists Podcast. Boom. What? Things you own end up owning you. Do what you like, man. Materialist Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. I know. I'm still Nigel Rudolph, Public Archaeology Coordinator with the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region. Still me. Still in the game. Still talking about stuff and those things we surround ourselves with. Breaking down the concept of material culture studies. Well, so folks will find it interesting. (laughs) Things are good here. Coming at y'all. Once again, from the Gainesville office of FPAN Central, still in the pandemic, believe it or not, still trying to make social change in this profession, still rambling on and still fighting the good fight. The episode today, we're going to be hearing from a couple of folks on both sides of the archaeology preservation coin. We'll be bringing this hardcore, son. Not really. I have missed podcasting. I have missed bringing my take on the world of archaeology and material studies to y'all. I sincerely hope I will get to do it more often, bring on some new voices, introduce some new topics, make more dad jokes, just keep it real. Anyway, let's get into it. I interviewed Pedro Zapata over Zoom while I was in a cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. So forgive the audio. I had a host of questions to ask him and we covered some of those, but our conversation kind of morphed into this other thing towards the end of our chat. It became less of an interview and more like a regular conversation between two folks trying to learn more about one another. To me, that is. Pedro might have felt that this was just a regular interview, but I ended up being far more interested in his personal philosophy as a maker of things and less on his position as an indigenous person on the state of Florida archaeology. If we, the people that study this stuff, might take five seconds for some introspection, it's not hard to come to the conclusion about what indigenous view of academic Florida archaeology might be. All right, let us, archaeologists... Put our pith helmets aside for a moment and think about that. (laughs) 
I mean, yes, the Materialist Podcast is rooted in archaeology, of course. It is a thing I do for work, and it is a very difficult subject to cover and discuss in a way I feel folks will find interesting, which is why these episodes are so few and far between now. It's hard to make archaeology in Florida interesting. I'm not going to lie. But not just interesting, Becky O'Sullivan, who started the podcast with me so many years ago, and I wanted to really formulate this subject in a digestible way for folks that would quite easily fall asleep to someone droning on about the things archaeologists actually do. We, well, I want this podcast to go deeper and cross boundaries and help everyone get how vital understanding material culture is to understanding ourselves and the society we have constructed. Part of that, of course, is moving into areas that aren't normally discussed or conversing with people who typically don't get the opportunity to share. Hmm, guess who they might be? I'm sure Pedro gets interviewed often. He's a fascinating dude who does fascinating stuff. But I do not think it's a stretch to say this. It is not customary in archaeology to seek the opinions of the indigenous population here in Florida. That's not coming from a place of ego. In all honesty, that's coming from a place of understanding and my experience in the field, which has been a long one and a complicated one. Anyways, my conversation with Pedro was enlightening. It was just really great. And let me share some of that with you. Uh, my name is uh, Pedro Zapeta. Uh, I'm a member of the Seminole tribe of Florida. So my mother is Seminole. My father is, uh, I guess what you call Tejano. He's uh, American-born um, of Mexican culture descent. And so I grew up here in Florida and uh, you know, spent a lot of time with my, my Seminole grandmothers and you know got really just you know, raised in our uh, culture and kind of grew up with that here in Naples, Florida. And until relatively recently, I'd say maybe the past 25 years or so, and, and until about the last 25 years, you know, my most of my family didn't live on a reservation because we're actually part of a group of Seminoles. A lot of people have don't know about called independent Seminoles. I don't. Please tell. And, <laughs> and so when you talk about Florida Seminoles, you're really talking about three groups of people, really. So you have you know, the Seminole tribe of Florida proper, Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida. And then the third group is the independent Seminoles. And so my great grandfather, Corey um, Osceola, he was leader of independent Seminoles for many, many years, you know, until his passing um, in the late seventies. And so what it really comes down to is it's more political difference than like long ancestral, you know, uh, separation. Mm -hmm. It just comes down to what was called the Indian Termination Act back in the 1950s. Sounds so pleasant. <laughs> yeah. And those from the U.S. government and they no longer meant physical termination of Native peoples, but they meant the sovereign termination of Native indigenous peoples in North America or in the United States uh, specifically. And so they basically said, you know, any tribe that didn't formally organize with like a written constitution and bylaws and all that kind of stuff would no longer be recognized as a sovereign nation by the United States government. And so uh, just like anything, when you try to get a group of people to agree on something, you know, it doesn't always go well. So, you know, not everybody agreed on how the this new government of the Seminole tribe should be formed. And so you ended up with first the Seminole tribe of Florida um, in 1957. And then several years later, you ended up with the Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida because, again, you ended up with two groups that didn't agree on, you know, 
the core of how this group should be organized. And then you ended up with independent Seminoles who said, well, we don't want the government to tell us how to be <laughs> Seminole. And so we're just not going to join either one. And we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing for millennia. Yeah. So again, it, it really goes only back to the 1950s. It's, it's not like, again, longstanding, you know, and you know, I always tell people, it's like, you know, my aunt is a member of the Miccosukee tribe and she enrolled her daughter in the Seminole tribe of Florida um, at the time, just because education benefits were better with the Seminole tribe. And right. Um, so just a quick pause for the cause here. Sorry to interrupt. So one of the things as an educator I try to do is really dispel a lot of myths about indigenous people, whether it's just here in Florida or throughout throughout the country. Pedro had a similar idea about how indigenous people very much are seen as in the past tense, they as if they don't exist anymore. We kind of have a view of we have a view of this indigenous people from the 1800s. That's that's our perspective, or the early 1900s. Plains indigenous people, you know, running with with bows and arrows, and uh, and all these myths that were perpetuated through so many different avenues, media, movies, etc. Well, there was an article that was related to that that I found in Indian Country Today, which is a digital indigenous news periodical, online periodical. And it the article's called All Indians Are Dead. At least that's what most schools teach children. And it was written by Alyssa Landry, originally published in 2014, but then updated in September 13th of 2018. And it's a really interesting look at this sort of social experiment this one professor did. Sarah Shear, Associate Professor of Social Studies and Education at Pennsylvania State University. She asked her students what they knew about indigenous people. This is a group, of, a class of undergrads, what they knew about indigenous people. Quote, what they told me is that they learned about Thanksgiving and Columbus Day, she said. Every once in a while, a student would mention something about the Trail of Tears. It was incredibly frustrating that they were coming to college believing that all Indians are dead. Pedro goes on here in a second to talk about how we need to look at them in the present. They're very much still here, especially in Florida, very much still here and very much represent their their culture and their traditional identities. Um, so it's really interesting. So I, I'll link to that article in the show notes, but definitely check it out. Back to the interview. You know, I think that's a big part of why, you know, I do so much, you know, presentations and demonstrations, you know, to, to the general public and traveling around mostly Florida and little bit into other states in the southeast you know so just try to educate as many people as as i can you know about um who seminoles are and who natives are and, mm -hmm. and that we're still here you know and usually that's one of my biggest takeaways is like you know we're still here we're still a living breathing culture <laughs> you know practicing you know our culture our language you know our religion and um you know it's that's probably one of the biggest things i come across in my demonstrations is um, again, not to the fault of the public, but having a default to talk about Native Americans in past tense. Mm -hmm. You know, film in Hollywood is definitely, you know, always an interesting thing. And, you know, it's finally in the last couple of years coming to where there's more indigenous representation in movies. And it's taken a long time for us to not be typecast, not to be the yeah. super spiritual native american shaman in right. a role and like i said so in the last couple of years you know that, that's finally changing that's been really great to see you know things like you know just came out last year uh, reservation dogs oh i love it i love it truly contemporary 
Native American story, you know, and talking, you know, it's written and directed and acted by all, you know, indigenous casts, you know, and there's like another show I watch, you know, you wouldn't think it has a native presence, but it's called Resident Alien. Oh, really? About an alien and his best friend is this, you know, indigenous woman, native woman from his area, but she just plays the friend, you know, of this alien and, you know, you know, she's indigenous, but it's not like, you know, it's punching you in the face with it the whole time. Like right. she's not know. burning sage everywhere. Or, yeah, you know. exactly. exactly. <laughs> Last cut in, I promise. So we actually did begin talking about his art and how he got started in the traditional seminal arts, how he got started in canoes and, and, you know, the whole process, he walked me through the whole process of, how he gets the logs and all this stuff as well. So that was really great. And then we got into a little bit more about what material culture is and why it's so valuable within a culture, which is, as you all know, the entire theme of this podcast. Yeah, I've always been artistic as long as I can remember. One of my earliest memories is taking a purple crayon and drawing a life-size figure on the wall at my parents' house. <laughs> how did that go over? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, my my cousin was watching me and he got really wide eyed and scared and tried to clean it off the wall. Cause I think he was afraid he was going to get in trouble with my That's parents funny. for, <laughs> you know, not watching me close enough that I got the chance to, uh, draw again, a life size at the time. So it was probably like, you know, a three foot tall crayon <laughs> <laughs> drawing on the wall. And it stayed on the wall until we repainted the house. I think when we were like 13 or 14 years old, <laughs> so, it's, it's wax. So you can, well, you can see the outline of where it was. Cause like he was trying to wash it off and the paint was just flaking. It was a mess. <laughs> You know, just growing up, I was just, again, kind of kind of just immersed in it. You know, I was pretty much raised by my grandma until awesome. I was about, you know, five or six years old whenever I started school. Not that my parents abandoned me or anything, just <laughs> my parents were working, you know, nine to five. And so I spent those days with my grandmother, um, actually my grandmother's, because my, my maternal grandmother and uh, my maternal great grandmother and um, also my great aunt. And uh, so just my earliest memories are just, you know, being at their camp and, you know, them just sewing all day, you know, sewing our, our patchwork clothing. And, you know, so me and my, my brother and my cousins would just be outside running around and come in, they make us lunch. And, you know, sometimes, you know, one of my uncles might bring, you know, a deer or turtle or something like that. And so, the, you know, they still had a, a cooked chicky at their camp. And so my grandmas go out and butcher up this turtle or deer, whatever it is, and cook it up. And, you know, so was, at the time it was just, you know, it was just life. That's how we lived. Right. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it's like, oh, today we have to try to be Indian, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's just how life was, you know, just being around it. And so, and, you know, and my family traveled around to um, markets, you know, around the state a lot, you know, to different powwows and festivals and things like that and to sell patchwork and wood carvings and nice meadow fiber dolls and, um, all those things, a lot of people, you know, if they're familiar with seminal artwork or, or, you know, all that kind of stuff that they would travel around and sell. And, you know, my grandfather, Corey, had a, a shop here in, in Naples for a long time as well and sell all the arts and crafts from there. I was about 14 when I started wood carving. It was like, so it was my, my grandmother's partner at the time. His, his name was uh, Ingram Billy Jr. Um, and he just he just re recently passed. Hmm. But so he was doing wood carving at the uh, Atatagi Museum in Big Cypress. And so I just, you know, spend weekends with my grandma and with Ingram. And so I just, 
go with him and you know while he'd go collect wood and then sit with him while he's carving out in the village at, at the museum there and so he kind of really showed me some of the basics of wood carving and you know how to select woods and how to find them and some of those basics you know, i also learned some from my older brother brian and because he was um you know interested he's interested in a lot of the same kind of stuff i am mm-hmm. and, uh, so he was kind of getting into all that stuff too so i'd see him you know learning how to carve and things like that at the same time as well well, so this is one of the fascinating things when I think about all that's involved with this canoe making. So walk me through the process. Like, how do you how do you find the logs? How, how do you source this material? Um, pretty much I get all my trees from from the Big Cypress Seminole Reservation. You know, it's a 64,000 acre reservation. You know, thankfully, we do have some old growth out there. We don't have a ton. Yeah. And the old growth even that is out there isn't like massive large old growth cypress trees because I do use cypress to make these canoes. Mm -hmm. So about the biggest I can find is about two foot diameter cypress tree, which you're still talking like a 250 to 300 year old tree. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but cypress has the ability to get up to like, you know, 12 feet across is a massive tree, but that takes thousands of years for it to get that big. I personally, I look for cypress trees that have fallen down by natural causes, either by a hurricane or storm or just rot in the roots or something. And so I actually, I'll use like satellite images and look for areas on the reservation where I can see that looks like it has old growth cypress. And then I'll go to those places and just walk around on foot then and see if there's any trees that have fallen down. Mm. And so far I've been able to find enough cypress trees um, by that route to not, you know, have to cut standing, um, old growth cypress. How are you hauling them out? Um, different ways. I mean, sometimes I've had, uh, people with front end loaders or, <laughs> uh, we have a big John Deere tractor at the museum. The last one I pulled out, um, I worked on a canoe for the Amelia Island history museum mm-hmm. up in, um, Northeast Florida. So that one I hauled out myself and, uh, Gosh, that took me about six days to get that log out by myself. So I used twelve thousand pound winch on the back of my truck, oh my gosh, and a uh, bunch of line, and then I, I pulled out the log about maybe ten to fifteen feet a day till I got it to the edge of the woods. It didn't help because, like, out in Big Cypress Law, the the cypress domes actually have about like I don't know about a six or eight foot berm all the way around them, and you oh, can drive really? on top of it. So even when you get to the edge of the woods, you still got to go up this berm, and <laughs> you only have you know, whatever, 15 feet of width to try and like, you know, set the car and pull this log up and out. So this log was like, I think I cut it like at 16 feet. And that one was, I think the log was probably about 20, 24 inches across. Wow. So it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge, but, but I got it out, you know, and um, kind of in the middle of the pandemic, you know, it was, uh, I think it was in 2020 when I pulled that out. So it was just uh you know, I knew I wasn't really going to be able to have much help out there. So I <laughs> right. did it on my own, but it's, you know, I learned a lot doing that one, but it's definitely easier when you get someone with actual heavy equipment just to pull these out. Um, yeah. You need to get a, a helicopter, man. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> get the trouble helicopter to come pull it out. But, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, they have you know, so I like, there's another log out there now that's even larger. And so, you know, that one I'm just kind of working on in place to like, oh, get, no it kidding. Light, get it light enough to be able to pull out and then finish it at, at home, um, which is kind of more the older way of doing it before we had trucks and tractors and heavy equipment. We just, in the wintertime, make the canoes. And then once the 
you know, spring, summer rains come, you just float it out. Work smarter, not harder, right? Is yeah. that what they say? <laughs> <laughs> While I was in college, when I went home for the summer, I several summers actually worked at our, our tribal museum, the Atathagi Museum, because my brother was working there. And so um, he was working on canoes. So I started working on it with him, you know, and again, I had some wood carving experience, art experience. And so I'd say a lot of my early canoe carving um, knowledge came from my brother, Brian. Um, and then there's been a lot of trial and error since then. And so once I left college, I started working on the big Cypress Reservation at our tribal school um, as the art teacher. Oh, awesome. I didn't know that. So I did that for about a year and a half because I didn't go to school for art or I mean, for teaching. I went to school for art. So, I mean, definitely a lot of props to teachers out there because that was, I was kind of being thrown into fire for a, a you know, fresh out of college, a uh, 21 year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. <laughs> I, I had the art experience, but not the teaching experience. Yeah. It was funny. Cause I was there for a year and a half and then principal, he, he had a meeting with me. He was it's like, Pedro, he's like, you're great here. You know, we really like you. And <laughs> he's like, but you know, if you want to continue here, it's like, you know, I think we're going to want you to, you know, start getting those the teaching credentials um, to go <laughs> along with the art that, you know, and so then I was kind of at a crossroads, you know, well, do I continue down this teaching path or do I, you know, go in a different direction? And so at that time I decided to go in a different direction. That's when I started working at the Adathagi Museum full time for a number of years. And, um, but so while I was teaching, you know, again, you know, working on the reservation. So I try to incorporate as much of our, our culture into the art programming as I could. Um, and learning about other indigenous artists from across the country and things like that. And and then we actually had um, a contemporary art exhibit that came to Naples. Uh, it's called Art Without Reservations. Hmm. And so, um, so it was really cool and groundbreaking at the time to have this traveling contemporary Native American art exhibit. And so I took a few of the high schoolers down there to go see the exhibit and things like that. And, you know, so I try to, again, I, I tried to be the who I wanted when I was in art school, you know, and... So that was pretty cool to, to do that. And, you know, sometimes we do wood carving because we had a culture program at the tribal school as well. So I'd work with them a lot as well. Um, so they say, oh, yeah, we're doing wood carving. Can you help us out and stuff like that? And so I do that there. And so then I did that for about a year and a half. Like I said, it was, it was, you know, a fun and whirlwinding time of a year and a half for me. And, um, you know, it's it was a short time of my life, but it, it still or it was a really impactful one. You know, I still, you know, cherish a lot of those connections and relationships I had with the um, teachers and students and some of the students that are now working, you know, at the tribal museum now and things like that. And, but yeah, so I started working at the museum and I first started out as an oral history coordinator. I don't remember exactly how long I did that there. Um, so I was, you know, gathering and um, entering oral histories and things like that into our collection at the museum. Um, I probably did that maybe for a year, year and a half as well. And then our director said, well, like, I want to create a new position called traditional arts coordinator. Are, are you interested in that? And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And it also might have been, a, you're okay at oral history, but I don't think that's the best thing that you're at, you know, the thing that you do the best. <laughs> but traditional arts coordinator is what I did the, for the longest time while I worked at the museum is probably about five or six years, I think, maybe. Uh, that, that was pretty awesome, you know, because it really allowed me to hone you know, all those skills that kind of just dabbled in up until that point. So then it really became my job to, to learn our traditional arts. And so, you know, I was able to, to go out and collect materials and talk with people and, you know, sit with other artists and then hold classes with tribal members. And, you know, one of the best ways about learning how to do something is to try and teach it to somebody. 
Yeah, no um, kidding. Absolutely. It really makes you think about how you do something too. And if it's the best way too, because the t- students will start asking you questions like why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why do you do like this? Or why don't you use a different kind of tool or technique? And so you really think about it, well, why am I doing it this way? Or, you know, why do I use this tool? Or is this the best tool? Is there something else out there? And, you know, so teaching those classes definitely, you know, help improve me as well. You know, hopefully I was giving to the students too, as, as much as I could. And, you know, like I make kind of our older style of baskets. So like our utilitarian baskets, like pack baskets and sifting baskets and berry picking baskets and stuff like that. So not the coiled sweetgrass baskets that mm-hmm. most people associate with Seminoles. That's actually relatively new hmm. um, to our tribe is really kind of developed during the, the tourist era and the kind of 19 teens and twenties, but like the baskets we used to you know, collect our corn out of the fields or to process that corn, you know, that woven in a different uh, manner. So I, I started learning about that from my grandmother because um, she had some of the baskets, you know, hanging up in her house, you know, so I'd ask her about those and because um, I wanted to make them, you know, it's kind of a weird kid. I want to learn how to make all these, you know, older things that we really didn't use in our day-to-day lives anymore. So she told me what she remembered because, you know, her mother made them and her aunt made them. Um, but my grandmother never made them herself. So she, you know, basically kind of told me about how the materials peeled down and processed. Um, and then she just gave me one of the baskets and it's like, okay, figure it <laughs> figure out. It out now. <laughs> that's what I did. Yeah. You know, and I think something that's different for at least, I think most indigenous traditional arts versus like Western traditional arts and crafts is all the cultural knowledge that's kind of imbued with the objects. Yes. You know, because I they have a lot of what I like to call um, cultural etiquette or cultural protocol. You know, again, it's kind of a new idea to a lot of people that have been raised, I guess, maybe in, in that type of culture. But like, who can make certain objects? At what point in their lives can they make these objects? What, you know, kind of life events had they have to have gone through to make certain objects? What does your particular clan know about this object? you know what stories go along with this object um what language goes along with this object and so there's all this extra knowledge that makes these not just objects but they're you know literal vessels of of cultural knowledge i really view it kind of like as a a sovereign act to be able to make these things and continue to do them and to exercise our rights to collection of materials and our rights to religious use of materials and our our rights, you know, the knowledge that goes along with it. So I think just simply uh, making and using these items, yeah, I think is an act of sovereignty, I think, as, as far as I view it, you know, just to continue to do it, you know, really comes down to a use it or lose it kind of thing. Just to, um, we'll wrap it up here. My office is at the Crystal River Archaeological State Park in Crystal River. We, at the museum there, we acquired a dugout, in your experience, like these pre-colonial, pre-contact boats. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty much whenever there's water, people have wanted to cross it. You yeah. know, I think there's just that natural curiosity of like, what if I could be out on that water, you know, and and just kind of, I think a curiosity, it might also be maybe a bit of survival as well. It's like, you know, maybe there's more fish out in the middle of the lake as opposed to right here by shore. Um, or if I could get to that spot over there, you know, could I find, you know, more food on shore up there? You know, I've always said pretty much anywhere in the world where there's large straight trees, people have made them into canoes. Yeah, no um, doubt. <laughs> it's really 
it's you know dugout canoes are endemic just to the Seminole tribe of Florida you know as people all around the world you know I'm like there's even groups of Europeans that have have a continuous tradition of dugout canoe carving in Eastern Europe and Siberia mm-hmm. you know so again it's just it's something that's global you know so it is kind of cool just to see that continuous use of of watercraft here in in North America and um, see how far back it, it goes you know I just think one of the interesting things is like I tell people like there's this weird gap in our canoe history at least in North America of uh, from like pre-contact up till like I don't know like the 1880s or so there's like almost no examples of canoes from that hmm. time period from you know, some from around somewhere around 1500 to somewhere around 1880s. You know, you have this huge gap of of almost no examples of of canoes. And you know, obviously, we know people were still making them, but for some reason, I think it's just maybe the utilitarianness of of a watercraft that you know caused those that time period to have just a big old gap of of not right. having it. Well, and I think that's also, you could see that in how, you know, you go from stone and shell tools to metal tools, you know, it's like the, the, from what I understand, the indigenous people very quickly were like, oh yeah, yeah, no, we'll use metal. That's way it was. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, and that, that's probably maybe the number one question I get asked when people came up, come up to when I have the dugout canoe out is, you know, oh, did you burn it out? I'm like, no, we probably stopped that about 400 years ago you know almost every museum or historic site if they mention something about native americans and canoes it's usually burning and scraping and then like ignore the next you know 400 years of canoe carving history right Uh, but also like i said there's not really hardly any examples it was really cool though in in october 2019 a canoe did wash up on egmont key in tampa bay Yes. I know the carbon dating is like a little bit earlier than contact period, but I think it's, I think it's a little bit later than what the the higher percentage of the carbon dating says, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell people carbon dating isn't like, Oh, it's from this year specifically. Right. It's like, it's 60% plus or minus, <laughs> but there's like a 20% chance. It could be from this later period or 20% chance it could be from this period. I was like, I think it's not 20% later. You know, I really think because in my opinion, that that canoe looks like it was made with with steel tools. Like I recognize mm. marks and, and the tool artifacts that are left in the wood from the the steel tools. And um, there are certain parts of that canoe that can, I think, really only steel tools could make some of those cuts in that that are in that canoe. Yeah, so you I had think, a chance to go out there and everything, right? Like you were all yeah, involved I, in I got the process. In yeah. Now, I know it's it was supposed to have gone to Tallahassee to, you know, get, um, you know, polyglycol or whatever that stuff is that they, they peg. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you. The peg that they preserve it in. And um, I don't know if it went back to uh, Egmont Key yet or not, but it was supposed to be displayed there on, on the island. But yeah, and I think it's, it's one of those canoes that's kind of from that missing time period. Like, I don't know if people really realize how important that, object is to our canoe history and knowledge because again like whatever it is like 800 or so canoes that are in the florida's database you know you know majority of them are pre-european contact canoes and then those few that are from like the late 1800s and up right right so i mean honestly i don't know if there's any other examples of like an early European contact native made dugout canoe because that shape of the canoe is like just like pretty much all those 
you know, pre-contact canoes is just made with steel tools. Yeah, that's probably one of the other things I deal with is like, you know, our our own view of self-identity, you know, versus Western views of, of cultural, national, racial identity. You know, it's it's not quite the same, you know. It's like, again, you have that like, you know, you're from Mexico, so you're Mexican. You're from France, right. so you're French. But it's like, that's just country of nation, not necessarily you know, cultural origin, you know, they're not the same one in the same, you know, it's like, you know, for being Seminole, it's like, first and foremost, your identity is your clan. Um, by the What's clan your clan? Panther, Panther clan. And so you're, you know, first and foremost is your, your clan, you know, that you inherit from your mother. And then historically, you know, it'd be, then you would identify yourself by what town you came from. And then sometimes you might identify yourself by a larger tribal nation that might share the same language, you know, because, you know, for Seminoles, usually hear one of two things, you know, that almost sound completely opposite. It's like Seminoles are just a mixture of a bunch of different tribes or Seminoles are just creeks that moved into Florida. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's like they're either one group that just moved or there are like 10 groups that mix together. And the funny thing is neither is true or untrue. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's, and that mixing isn't necessarily as, as homogenous as people think either, you know, because like even today in the Seminole tribe of Florida, you know, we still have a, you know, cultural, unique Creek speaking community in the Brighton and Fort Pierce communities. And the remainder of the tribe is Miccosukee speaking a different language. So the majority of our tribe is Miccosukee speaking when we have a minority that speaks the Creek language. Mm. So even after all these hundreds of years, we've still maintained two separate languages within the tribe. They, they didn't meld into one single Krikasuki language. <laughs> right. Krikasuki. <laughs> For listeners, Krikasuki is not a real word. I just made that up now. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good one, though. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so again, people don't necessarily think about that, you know, maternal uh, clan system. And that so like, like if someone was you know, uh, Mikasuki and a Creek speaker get married, that child is going to learn mostly from whatever the mother is. And they'll probably identify more as what the mother is. So, but doesn't necessarily mean they won't learn both languages and both nuances of those cultures. They will lean more heavily towards, towards whatever it is of, of the mother. You know, it's definitely, you know, levels of organization stuff. It, I think it's just different than in western culture and western thought and yeah. um, ideologies and so you know it's just you know trying to maybe reteach relearn what identity and nationality and self-identity you know what, what that is and in, in from a you know north american indigenous perspective so yeah <laughs> Yeah, this is great. I could talk to you forever, but <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time Pedro. It's been really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I talked enough about canoes. We actually Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. But <laughs> but you did and you did and and you didn't at the same time, but it's all informative. It's all it's adding to the information because the whole point of my podcast, the materialist podcast which has been seriously neglected, is to to try to explain to listeners that what goes into objects, the material things that we surround ourselves with, there's so much more that goes into these things, whether it's making something out of wood, making something out of clay, the maker is making is part of this. Yeah. 
And I think that's what's valuable. So you telling me about your history and your story and your art school and your family, all of that is adding to the material object. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel that like, even like him, especially handmade objects, you know, have, you know, an energy and a life to them, you know, that you're literally like putting part of yourself in that object. And so it's, you know, what, what are you putting into it? You know, you know, how are you feeling at that time? What are you going through at the time? And, um, and you put part of that into whatever you're making, whether you're realizing it or not. Pedro, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, and we should stay in touch for sure. All right. Sounds good. So I mentioned the Crystal River dugout canoe in my interview with Pedro, um, and I really loved his thoughts on those pre-colonial dugouts. But between my interview with Pedro and, well, right now, uh, my colleague Rachel Kangas and I from the Florida Public Archaeology Network West Central Region, we took a big-ass moving truck rented it in Crystal River, drove it all the way up to Tallahassee to the Division of Historical Resources there and picked up the Crystal River canoe. It had been in the Bureau of Archaeological Research's conservation lab for the past year or so, getting a, well, getting a facelift, some much needed conservation attention for about the past year or so. So we went up there to bring it home, bring it back to Crystal River, and we unloaded it, and it's now again on display at the museum at the Crystal River Archaeological State Park. While at the BAR Conservation Lab, I had a chance to sit down with the head conservator, Jessica Burns, and talk to her about what she did to the Crystal River Canoe, what what those steps were for doing the preservation treatment, um, and how she got that canoe looking oh so sweet. First thing that we do in conservation, pretty much across the board, is documentation. We will always take photographs and write down any notes so that we remember what it looks like when it comes into the lab. Uh, then we mechanically cleaned it, meaning that we went over the whole surface and removed any dust, debris, anything along the surface that we didn't want on there. Glitter, apparently. Glitter, yes. <laughs> Once that was finished, we did some chemical cleaning with acetone. And acetone can really break down some of those older treatments that were on the surface of the canoe. And we used little toothbrushes and little kind of makeshift tools, little sponges and that sort of thing to apply the acetone and then soak up that material that was softened so that we could remove it. Mm. And we did that on the whole front surface of the canoe and that was quite tedious work. And then we were able to flip the canoe over and do the same process on the back side. Uh, what was interesting is that all those previ previous treatments were not applied to the backside. Of right, the yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, so that saved us a lot of time, and then we were able to proceed to the sealant. So we applied a conservation-grade sealant to the surface of the canoe. That provides a really nice barrier that is still moisture and um, air permeable so mm -hmm. that the wood can still shift and change with changing environment mm -hmm. and so the, the sealant won't break off or um, cause problems down the road and it also won't yellow or um, degrade over time. Is that what had happened? Because I remember there was one, I don't know my boat lingo, but <laughs> one of the ends there was, it was definitely yellowing it actually looked like there was some mildew or something that had been growing on the surface. It was like soft. Right, yeah, um, it, that can happen over time. Um, some of the, the older methods 
would need to be reapplied or changed out over time. And so that's why we rely on some of these newer methods because they last for a really long time. Not, you know, objects don't last forever. Yeah. Uh, they will always need retreatment and monitoring through time, but we try to extend that time as long as we can. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, Barbara Roberts, the manager at Crystal River, is just, just thrilled to get it back. So it's loaded in the back of <laughs> a very janky U-Haul truck, so <laughs> hopefully it gets back and I mean, it will get back in one piece, no problem. And I saw you have several tanks. We are at the uh, the Gray Building Conservation Lab. Um, it's absolutely amazing facility. It's huge. And there's several tanks out in the other room, the adjacent room here, that have current canoes. What are the canoes that are in there? Um, so yes, we are very fortunate to have uh, built-in concrete tanks. It's not something that every lab has. Um, they are actually 24 feet in length, um, and we have several other ones of smaller size. And we have two canoes currently, um, one from Egmont Key and then one from Avon Park. And um, so one came from a saltwater environment and one came from a freshwater environment, which is why they're in two separate tanks. And so we are currently researching and trying to make a plan for the treatment of those two canoes. So it's super fascinating, but what else do you guys conserve here besides um, besides indigenous people's canoes? A wide range of archaeological objects. So mm -hmm. what we do is a little bit different than a lot of art conservators. We'll, we'll focus on paintings and sculptures and things that are in a lot of the art museums, whereas we focus on archaeological objects. So our objects tend to come to us dirty and perhaps broken, mm -hmm. and so when we go from a before to an after, it's really an amazing transformation. It's very dramatic, yeah. Yeah, it can go from basically unstable to completely stable and able to go out for display at a museum, which we have objects on display all over the state, all over the country, as well as research from our collections facility. You mentioned that the, the uh, you have two different tanks. One is for like a freshwater mm -hmm. vessel and the other is for holding a saltwater vessel. So what is the difference in the treatment that they're undergoing? I mean, I'm obviously, perhaps the freshwater one would be less tedious to... <laughs> um, so that one is just in our tap water. Our tap water here in Tallahassee is very low in salts and those chlorides. So it's just currently being stored until mm. we can develop a treatment plan for yeah. that one. And then the other one, you have to take the chlorides out of the canoe itself. So through kind of that osmosis, we the chlorides will um, leach into the water until it reaches an equilibrium with the canoe. So oh, it's the yes. same amount of chlorides in the solution and the canoe. And then we change out that water, putting fresh tap water in, and that'll help the chlorides reach equilibrium again, but at a lower amount. So we follow that lower amount as it goes down over time, and then when it reaches a minimal level, then it will just go into tap water storage, just like the other one, um, until we develop a treatment plan. And are you are you testing the water? Is that how you're being yes. able to see the chloride level? Yes, we have little test strips that we stick in the water, and that tells us how many parts per million chlorides that we have. So what is PEG? And when does that come into play? Uh, polyethylene glycol. <laughs> yeah. uh, so wood, as anyone's seen a, a waterlogged you know, branch that dries, it'll start to twist and break. And so waterlogged canoes do something very similar. If we were to allow it to just start drying and not do anything to it, those cells will start to collapse and the wood will twist and break apart. And we want to prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, so we use polyethylene glycol as one of our bulking agents. And so we will put PEG into the water solution that it's stored in and we'll build up those percentages over time. 
and that peg will seep into all of those little cells and bulk those cells so that when the water, so the, as the water is replaced, that peg will go in there. So when it does dry, those cells are full of peg and not water. Mm. And so that peg will support all those little cell walls and then we can allow it to slowly dry and then it can go for display. We will also heat the peg so that it'll help to keep it in solution. So that opens, does that open up the pores of the wood or? Uh, it's more because the peg that we use is uh, solid at room temperature. So if we kept it at room temperature, it wouldn't go into solution and wouldn't go into those little cells. Mm -hmm. So we heat that up so that it's able to move around. So we have to keep the tank circulating, we have to keep it heated. Wow. And oh, by the way, peg is corrosive to metal. <laughs> So, Perfect. <laughs> yes, so everything that touches that, it's got to be stainless steel. Mm. It can also break down a lot of our equipment over time. Wow. So that has to be factored into the cost. That's just like movie theater popcorn. I used to work at a movie theater and it was a solid at room temperature and then you put this giant heating element until it became a, a liquid and it seemed to corrode everything. Yeah, but <laughs> <it's> <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode, y'all. I thank you so much for listening. I know it's been a while since I've put out an episode. I am going to be putting them out. I have no, I'm not going to give any guarantees as to when it's going to happen. I'm trying to pace myself and, and really have some value to what I'm putting out and not just putting something out for the sake of uh, putting it out. So I don't want to do that. First and foremost, I just really want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. If there's any of you still out there, um, if you're interested, you can find the Materialist Podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, Podbean, Spotify. Um, we are on the social media, Instagram and Facebook. Please like us and share. We would love some social media interaction. So if you give me a shout out, uh, I will give you a shout out. And if you uh, holler at me um, about maybe an idea for a podcast episode, I will give you a shout out on the, the next episode. If you would like to email me some ideas or if you have any comments or if you just want to say, you know, Nigel, you're doing such a good job, uh, <laughs> you can reach me at materialistpodcast at gmail.com that's the materialist podcast at gmail.com huge thank you to the university of south florida and the usf department of anthropology huge thank you to all the fpan regions out there if, if you want more information about fpan please go to fpan.us massive massive thank you to have gun will travel for the amazing intro music as always if you would like to find out more info on have gun will travel please go to their facebook page uh, hg WT Music, and then their website is hgwtmusic.com. And huge shout out to Pedro Zapeta for the interview. It was great. It was really kind of powerful to get in depth and, and hear his personal thoughts on so many different things. So thanks, Pedro. If you would like more information on Pedro and his work, you can find him on Facebook at Pedro Zapeta Seminole. Huge thank you to Jessica Burns with the Division of Historical Resources and the Bureau of Archaeological Research Conservation Lab. Jessica, you're a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Read the show notes. I'm going to put a bunch of stuff in the show notes um, and more info on everything we talked about today links and such will be in there and i think that's it thanks for listening i'll catch y'all on the flippity flip Come on.